Welcome back to The Yoga Show from Yoga Journal, a show about yoga and other things. I'm your host, Lindsay Tucker, executive editor of Yoga Journal. I had the best time getting to know our November-December cover yogi, Amber Carnes. She's the founder of Body Positive Yoga. We went to hang out with her in her hometown of Baltimore to talk about rethinking oppressive systems and why yoga is for all bodies. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Amber as much as I did. We're here today with Amber Carnes, yoga teacher and founder of Body Positive Yoga. Amber, hello. Hey. Thank you so much for being here with us. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thank Amber you. is also on the cover of our November-December issue, which is on newsstands now. You guys have to check it out. It's awesome. So Amber and I are going to be talking today about lots of stuff. The issue is themed celebration. So one thing I wanted to talk to you about um, was sort of this idea about celebrating others. Yeah. And I feel like that's kind of something that you're super good at. And you kind of touched on that with your teaching and in your retreats. What does it mean for you to celebrate other people? Uh, that's such a great question. I, when I think about celebrating other people, like my mind immediately goes to this idea of like making welcome mm -hmm. and sort of playing hostess a little bit. Yeah. And, but not in the way of like wanting to impress everyone with, you know, how great of a party I can throw or <laughs> yeah. how great of a class I can teach or whatever, but really about... Um, helping people to feel uh, that sense of belonging mm -hmm. that comes with community when you create community around a cause that you're passionate about or around a shared experience or something like that. And I think the most powerful thing about being able to create a space where people feel welcome to be themselves is that um, I feel like there's not a lot of places like that in the world. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like where you can actually come and bring all the parts of yourself and yeah. not have to like leave any parts of yourself at the door to be right. accepted like into the group. You know what I mean? Yeah. Even some people, you know, when they're around their friends or their family or their coworkers, they're like, may feel like they are not able to oh, definitely. really show, you know, their queerness or their blackness, or if they're in a larger body to talk about those experiences, you know, the things that really make us who we are and those, the struggles that, because of the culture we live in, like make it hard to be human sometimes. And so I think like the celebration thing with others is, you know, sometimes it's about um, platforming people who have been underestimated or underrepresented because of the way that society is set up. Right. But sometimes it's really just about creating spaces that folks can feel free to be themselves because then we can feel safe in our bodies and really be honest and and in relationship to one another in a different way. Right. Whereas, you know, if you've ever been in a situation where you felt alone, even though you're with a crowd of people, yep. you, everyone knows what that feels like. And so for me, it's about celebrating like our whole selves. Right. You know, like that's self-love to me is not just loving like the parts that are acceptable or pretty or, you know, the accomplishments that you've made, but also like the shadow side and the things that, are the quote unquote imperfections or things that culture tells us to be ashamed of. Oftentimes, like I think those are what connect us as humans and kind yeah. of like can be our superpowers, like our differences. And so celebration is like for me about celebrating us in our wholeness. Yep. Which is, I think, really radical thing to do in a culture that constantly like wants you to treat your life as if it's like a project to be yeah. improved upon yep. or there's this demand for perfection. Yeah. So. Definitely it resonated with me when you were saying like, oh, well, people might feel judged like even with their families. I mean, I, I love my family, but I think that that's one of the places I've always felt most judged in my life and like the least myself or accepted as myself around them. Um, and I've realized lately I've been trying to take a little bit of responsibility for like well what am I hiding what am I how am I catering to this because it's not totally their fault if I'm not projecting myself and having the tough conversations and being like hey this is me and it's on me for you to accept that mm -hmm. um so what are some little ways that we can all um take a little step of responsibility for showing up and honoring our own selves yeah for sure I mean I think that thing about wanting to be accepted by others, sometimes it's really more about us than them, right? Mm -hmm. Like, cause so let's say there's something about you that you don't want to share with your family, maybe because you think they won't approve, you know, mm -hmm. with your career or a partner or whatever it is. Um, 
really when we do that um, and we don't share that part of ourselves, I feel like it's a little bit of a way of trying to like control the reaction or mm-hmm. the thoughts and the feelings that someone else is having, but not because we want to be controlling to them, but because we don't want to think something bad about ourselves yeah. when they share that reaction with us. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the good news is that actually we can work with our own minds and manage our own minds, take responsibility for our thoughts and our feelings, which are like the only things in the world we can control. Yeah. Right. We can't control the circumstances of, um, you know, the family you were born into mm-hmm. or the, the place that you live necessarily or the body that you're in, but you can always control your thoughts and your feelings about those. And I don't say that like it's some super like easy thing to do. Right. Right. I think that, you know, when you're raised in a culture and a society where there's like hierarchy and Mm -hmm. standards and, you know, real, um, I think, cost to maybe like being yourself, if that goes counter to like what dominant culture says is good or valuable or worthy. Yeah. And it's not easy, but it is simple. It is simple to be able to think about something in a different way. Right. Like. Let's say if, you know, one of the things like a lot of people listening can probably identify with the idea of coming out to your family about your sexuality or something like that, where it might cause ripples, you know, Mm -hmm. that when someone reacts to you in a way that feels hurtful, Mm -hmm. maybe if they're like, well, I wish that you weren't gay or, you know, whatever it Mm -hmm. is, um, you can make that mean something about you as a person, right, that you are less than because you're not straight or whatever, like internalized depression, like society wants us to feel, or you can have a totally different feeling. And that's not easy. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it in a trite way. That's like, we'll just change your thoughts and then everything will be fine. (laughs) Like this isn't about like positive thinking or something like that or bypassing your feelings. But I think that we sometimes forget that we can really work with the mind, which I think is mm-hmm. like the biggest gift that yoga gives us right. um, to be able to understand our mind and make friends with our mind and actually like learn to manage it a little bit better. Because I think we get this idea that like when a thought occurs to us or like a feeling happens that like it's inevitable. And actually those of us that practice yoga know more than anyone that bodies change and mm-hmm. feelings change in an instant, over the course of a class, over the course of a three-minute breath practice. Like, we know that we can work and shift with those things. And so when we have those thoughts and those feelings that are really painful, like, we can understand that, like, thoughts are sentences happening in your brain. Feelings are vibrations happening in your body. Both of those are things that we actually can work with. Um, So I think what you're saying is that it's really important not to attach meaning about ourselves based on other people's reactions. And the part that you, when you mentioned about reacting with empathy towards maybe someone's negative reaction, that reminds me of something I was reading recently, I think Brene Brown, where the the counterpart or the antidote to shame is empathy. And while it's not our responsibility to feel empathy for others who have hurt us, it is kind of the best way to redirect shame messages Mm -hmm. to absolve them inside our our own hurt. Yeah, I don't, um, you know, I want the empathy that that whole situation is not about the other person and their feelings and trying to like make them feel okay about like being a bigot or whatever. Like that's (laughs) not what we want to use the empathy for. Like that is actually for ourselves. Mm -hmm. That's for our own healing because we can make a choice when that sort of thing happens. When someone, let's say, shames you for something that if I, you know, if someone yells like fat bitch on the street, which happens to me often, I can either make, I can either take that and say like, yeah, I really should like work on my body. Like this is, you know, it's shameful that I'm fat. Or I can say like, that person is conditioned by this society to believe that and actually has nothing to do with me. And they're obviously like, having a very bad day. Yeah, they're, they're having a bad day. That's about the them. Street. That's not about me. They see me out here in my crop top and shorts or whatever. That holds up a mirror to how they're uncomfortable right. about their body. Right. Like, so we touched upon this idea of doing a body check. Mm. How often do you do them and what's your process? You know, do you just do like a quick... 50 second body check-in is it a five minute body check-in is it once every hour so um it depends (laughs) unhelpful answer but it's true I I think like at some point it just sort of becomes part of 
like the way that I do the world. Um, not in a like perfect way, but in the way of like, I start to notice more often when something's happening in my body that like holds some information for me. Sure. So, you know, if you've ever like said yes to something out of obligation rather than because you really wanted to do it or you believed in it, let's say you felt like a sense of duty to your boss or to your, you know, your best friend or whatever. And so, you know, when we make decisions that maybe aren't in alignment with our values Mm -hmm. or like what we know to be true about, okay, I don't have capacity for this, but now I feel obligated, right? Like there are certain sensations, I think, in your body that show up every time Mm -hmm. for certain feelings, right? So when you feel that sense of like saying yes, when you should say no out of obligation, for me, that feels like I feel it in my stomach. It's sort of Mm -hmm. like my stomach is tight. I feel heavy. I sort of like start to roll my eyes. I, um, I, I really feel this sort of like full body sense of like, ugh, yeah. if I'm honest with myself and right. if I'm paying attention. Right. And sometimes I don't even know that I've like done that until I start feeling that in my body and I notice it. Yeah. And then I can start to like work with my mind and understand like, okay, what is this feeling that's happening? Yeah. What are the thoughts that I'm actually having in this moment that might be connected to that? And then I can start to, you know, make better decisions next time yeah. or like learn or whatever. Unpack so it. sometimes it just happens that way. But I think there's also a really intentional way of working with it, which we often do in the yoga practice, right? We work with breath. We Mm -hmm. work with um, tracking sensation. We work with sensing. And I think it's very important to connect that sensing with the witness or like with observing without judgment, Mm -hmm. that sense of non-attachment that we've actually been talking about um, in regards to like our own thoughts and feelings. And Learning that skill of paying attention on purpose without judgment, that skill of mindfulness is, I think, the first step to really like doing this type of work. Um, But I think what you can do is actually use it to test out different thoughts that you might want to practice thinking on purpose. Oh, interesting. So I'll give the example of a photo shoot because we did some of those this week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so a photo shoot is a really nerve wracking experience for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, it definitely was for me at one point. Um, I think it can bring up a lot of things about like really being observed and seen and your appearance. And like mm-hmm. when you see the photos, often you have a lot of painful thoughts about like how your body looks or your face or yeah. I don't feel like I look like that. But now... Right. There's this whole spiral that can happen. That's totally common experience for people. And so I've actually done a lot of work with finding intentional thoughts that I those are like unintentional thoughts that happen. Right. Like those are born out of our conditioning, out of our um, our life experience. Um, They're informed by things that have happened in the past. Right. So like those bubble up. And I think sometimes we think they're some source of ancient wisdom or they have to be true or whatever. But like literally sometimes it's just like our software sort of playing unconditionally. Right. Yeah. Um, Or unintentionally, I mean. And so I think like finding those intentional thoughts that really create the feelings you want to have and that feel more true to you is like a really powerful way of working in this in this way with the body and the mind. So, for instance, an unintentional thought that might occur at a photo shoot, like while the camera is clicking in front of me is like, I'm afraid that I'm going to look fat in these photos or whatever. Like, I'm afraid the photos aren't going to be look good or, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever that script is that plays. That's going to create in my body feelings of shame or maybe feelings of wanting to hide or feelings of not wanting to take up so much space because that's what I've been conditioned to do. So holding my body in a way that's more reserved, right? Which of course is going to come across in the photos. Yep. And then of course I'll find the evidence later that they weren't good. And of Uh course I was right and I shouldn't take my photos. Right. So that's model one, right? Those unintentional thoughts. And then the second way would be actually to sit down and think about, okay, why am I doing this photo shoot in the first place? Right. So for me, I always have to go back to the why. Like I have to know what my reasons are and that I really like them. And so maybe the photo shoot is about representation of larger bodies. And that is really important for people to see that because then they sense possibilities for themselves, right? Like we often can really like 
feel a new way about ourselves. Let's say like we don't like our big nose, but then we like see someone who has a big nose objectively Literally, and is beautiful. All it takes to, is to see something to think it's beautiful. Right. And then you're like, oh, that's beautiful. Wait, could I also be, be-? you know, not that yeah. beauty has to be the goal. Like we can get into that, but you get the point. Yeah. So we, we can sense new possibilities about ourselves. So let's say the reason I'm doing the photo shoot is because of representation then actually it doesn't matter if I think I personally look hot in those photos, right? Like that's not even the reason I'm doing it anyway. It's just that my cultural conditioning tells me the mandate is to look hot because right. I'm female woman, and all photos yeah. have to look yep. hot, right? To have value. So if I don't actually even agree with that in the first place, then I can have a totally different reason for taking these photos. I can really like that reason and I can keep that as sort of like the cornerstone mm -hmm. of what I'm thinking about while the photos are getting taken. Because if I'm standing there thinking about obsessing about my appearance and am I going to look good and oh my gosh, like everyone's going to see these, I'm going to be small and play yeah. small. But if I'm thinking like I'm here for my community, the reason I'm getting these, like this will be meaningful to people. Yeah. When people see this, this will change their notion of who is well and who deserves wellness and like all those bigger things Which that I'm connected trillion to. trillion times more important or right. they're actually important whereas standardized S beauty is not important. Yeah and seeing another pretty photo in a magazine does nothing for people right. except maybe make, make them, them feel, feel bad. bad about themselves <laughs> or start yeah. comparing themselves whereas like connecting to that bigger purpose gives me a totally different feeling in my body by the way. I'm yeah. not going to feel shamed. I'm not going to want to be small. I'm going right. to want to show up fully. I'm going to yeah. want to be like super connected and present because I want to like represent that community that I care about so much. So this is what I mean about like it really is about the body yeah. and it's also about the mind. And I think the yeah. two are, you know, as yogis, we know that those two are connected. But I think that oftentimes we don't take these skills that we practice in asana classes or mm -hmm. when we do pranayama or meditation and we don't really like take them off the mat or out of our like one hour practice or you know whatever it is that we do and that these teachings I think really have these practical applications that can be so life-changing yeah and that self-study and the getting to know ourselves better so that we can more easily like connect to that humanity and other people. I think all of that is really available um, if we can start to work with the mind, which which can be a scary place, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. The yoga show will return in a moment after these messages. And I think you can something that you kind of touched on too with how your thoughts change how you're showing up in your body how you show up in your body can change your thoughts right you can reverse engineer that with mm -hmm. like the science with power poses I do power poses all the time yes. because if I feel small and I just need to break out of it you know then I'll just do like one of these and do two minutes like no one can see me right now but I just have my arms up in the <laughs> air or you can do like the lion roar or you can even stand with your hands on your hips, with your legs spread a little bit, you know, take up space. And the science has shown that that changes the way you think and the way other people perceive you. So if you do three minutes of power poses before a job interview, there was a Harvard study that showed um, all the people who did the power poses had, were well received in the interview. And then the people who didn't weren't. Mm -hmm. So and smile therapy, everyone knows about that smile might change the way you feel about yourself although I'm not telling anyone to smile <laughs> I was like to be clear smile alone in your car if you're feeling bad <laughs> not for anyone else it's not a referendum <laughs> yeah but yeah so we can sort of reverse engineer that too but I think the point is that that the body has an effect on how your thoughts show up and your thoughts have an effect on how your body shows up so if you can notice one or the other then maybe you can work with it in that way. And you can do it for yourself. Yeah. Like, I think that's so key. Like, this is, you know, one of the biggest things that I am exploring right now in my yoga practice, but also like my teaching practice is mm -hmm. this idea of agency and personal power mm -hmm. and that dominant culture conditions us that we are lacking and that we need that job, that relationship, that money in our bank, that mm -hmm. degree, that, you know, that perfect body to be complete. 
And that, you know, we need that partner to validate us so that we Mm -hmm. feel worthy and desirable. We need our, you know, a perfect family that makes us, you know, like that our circumstances define like who we are and how we feel about ourselves. And if we can give those things to ourselves, if we can have our own back and know that, you know, other people's thoughts and feelings and dominant cultures, mandates and beauty standards and all that other bullshit. Right. Am I allowed to say bullshit? Yes. (laughs) And all of that (laughs) um, actually doesn't define who we are, that we, you know, this goes back to the heart of the yoga teachings, that we have everything that we need inside, that we all have that spirit, that inner radiance, that spark of divinity that defines, you know, the, the experience of being alive and being human. And if we can start that journey of turning inward and remembering the truth of who we are and that, um, and getting in touch with that humanity, that like that wholeness of the human experience mm-hmm. that I was talking about, not just like the pretty parts. Yeah. That we can more easily see that and recognize that in other people. And that changes the way that we show up in relationships to ourselves, most importantly, maybe. Because yeah. if we know that we have that personal power inside, then that changes the way that we are in relationship to people, right? Then I can like love and accept my partner for exactly who they are rather than wanting him to be some ideal version of like whatever a real man is. You know what I mean? Like yeah. things like that start to happen that I think um, really can change like the way that we see ourselves and, and the possibilities that we allow ourselves in our relationships and in, in our lives. Do you have any mantras or meditations that you use with affirmations for that? Um, so I don't really have any like set uh, it changes, right? Yeah. So at, for a, and I like thinking about sort of working with my mind on this continuum, mm-hmm. right? And I'll use body image work as an example. So um, there's lots of things you can do to work with your body image. Some of them are like practical things, like wear something that scares you until it doesn't. You know, like there are some things like that. But I think body image for most of us isn't anything to do with what our body looks. It's about the thoughts we have about that body, right? Yes. And there, I'll just illustrate that with an example that a lot of us can relate to. Like if you've ever seen a picture of yourself when you were younger and you're like, oh, I was so skinny. I was yeah. so pretty. I was so whatever. But then think about yourself at that age. Did oh, yeah. you think you were skinny or pretty or perfect or whatever? I look at pictures of myself and like when I was 18 years old and I'm like, you didn't even know you were so gorgeous. You thought you were hideous right. and deformed and fat and like all of these words yeah. that society tells you are bad words right. and you think them about yourself. Yeah. And and, and so just- like that illustrates to me that your body image is nothing to do with actually what you look no. like. It has to do with your thoughts about it. And so- You know, I would say like when I started my body image journey, like in my early 20s, like I definitely thought I was all those things that you just said. Like I definitely didn't feel that I was beautiful or even like looked okay, or, you know, I was ashamed of the way that I looked. And then eventually, you know, working in this way, you can get to like a more neutral place. Mm -hmm. Like I think that the mistake that people make sometimes with affirmations or positive thinking, at least the way my brain works, Mm -hmm. I can't actually think, let's say if my body image is really bad. If I look in the mirror and I think my body is disgusting, like that's the default thought that comes yeah. up or like, ew, or if it's shame or whatever that is. I then standing in the mirror and looking at myself and saying like, you're a beautiful goddess. Like it doesn't work Yeah, because your, your BS detector goes off. Like your brain believes this other thought. It yep. can't believe the opposite thought at the same time. And so I think if you're trying to shift it, you can maybe fake it till you make it, but it's really difficult. So I like to pick a more neutral thought. So if I look in the mirror and I think like, oh, my thighs are disgusting, maybe a more kind thought that your brain can actually believe is these are the thighs of a human being. They're mm-hmm. bigger than some. They're smaller than others. Right. Like you remove the judgment from mm-hmm. the thought. I love that. Right. I'm not looking in the mirror and saying no one notices what my thighs look like. I'm not telling myself a lie. I'm not trying to like convince yourself of anything. I'm not trying to sell myself on anything. Like I want to pick a thought that's like a little more neutral, a little more true, right? A little more kind. Like this isn't something you're going to embroider on a pillow or make a Pinterest graphic out of. Like (laughs) it's kind of like not that exciting. But it's fine if you do. (laughs) But it's fine if you do. But like these are the thighs of a human being. It feels much more kind and realistic and humane of a thought than your thighs are disgusting. 
And my brain can actually believe it. So then you can start to make that the default thought, Mm. right? If you Mm -hmm. can train yourself to like, that's the mindfulness piece of noticing when that thought loop comes up and then being able to shift to a more neutral place, practicing that like creates that neural groove to make the default thought. Like this is cognitive behavioral therapy basically, right? To make that neutral thought the default thought. And then you could start to pick another one, right? Like maybe the next one on the continuum is something like, I have seen lots of people with thighs that look like mine and I think they're beautiful. I'm open to believing that I could be beautiful, right? I'm still not saying that sort of like positive affirmation, but so that's what I mean that there's this continuum and they change, right? Like I will be working with an intentional thought for maybe a long time, maybe a week, right? But getting to a place where I actually, and this takes work too, like you have to sit down and actually write things out and understand what thoughts are in your mind. Because lots of times we don't even question it. We just sort of like look in the mirror. We think, oh, disgusting. And we walk away. We don't actually interrogate it or ask like, where did that come from? We let the same thoughts run our brain every day. Yeah. They just run us all around, (laughs) right? Like this is the monkey mind swinging Mm -hmm. from branch to branch, like unchecked. And I think an unchecked mind is like, it is a terrifying place to be. Mm -hmm. If you don't realize that you can actually start to work with your thoughts in that way. And so I would just offer to everyone, um, um, a mantra that I actually like in meditation a lot is I am enough. And I, I lead that one a lot at my retreats and other places. Well, I did before COVID, but anyways, we'll get to that maybe. Um, and, uh, I love that one. And I think that's one that even if you don't believe it yet, mm-hmm. it can't hurt you. Right. Right. That's an aspirational one that I think doesn't have the same sort of like hierarchy or judgment in it that I am beautiful or, you know, any of that, like I am enough. I think puts the the responsibility back on us too. Yeah. Because we get that, to decide exactly what's enough. Yeah. One right? of the mantras that I've been doing lately is just like I am in charge. Mm-hmm. Just simply. I am in charge of my day, my thoughts, happiness. You know, yeah. I think that I, where I am in my life, I recently got divorced and I'm living on my own and, and I'm loving that and I'm, waking up every day and just deciding what I want to do. And that's so so radical to me, even though that's not a radical thing. But a lot of times we get in these patterns, behavioral patterns, and we don't believe that we're, we don't feel in charge anymore Mm -hmm. of your day, your thoughts, your happiness. And so I think just like I am enough and I am in, like I am in charge is something pretty simple that feels radical, but you got to keep working with it. Yeah, for sure. And I think it just, you know, when we start to work with our our thoughts in this way, I think it really points to the fact that we don't have to wait for our circumstances to change mm-hmm. for us to change. Right. Or for us to even just feel a little bit of relief from our own brains. You know, like, and I want to be really clear that all of this thought work stuff is not about like ignoring systemic racism or yeah. like, I'm just going to think, you know, like homophobia away and then I don't have to be bothered by it. Like, that's that's not not the point. This this thought work is not about like spiritual bypass or not dealing with your feelings. But I think it is about understanding that the circumstances of our life are often not things that we can control and that being attached to the outcome of a situation or a relationship or a job or your bank account or any of those things as like a referendum on who you are as a person and how much joy you're allowed to have Mm -hmm. and the possibilities that you allow yourself. Like I think it limits us so much and that if we can start to like actually practice these um, concepts of non-attachment and of really understanding like what we have control over um, it can bring I think a lot of freedom and a lot of um, not even freedom where it's just like nothing bothers you, but freedom to not try to control everything so yeah. much anymore, yeah. at least for people that are control freaks like me. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm very like type A go getter perfectionist me tendencies, too. which is, you know, dominant culture con- like conditions us to be that way. Um, black and white thinking is very tempting to me. Right. And so like this practice of um, expecting and accepting non-closure is a huge one. And I want to credit Michelle Cassandra Johnson for that, um, that line, expect and accept non-closure. It's one of the 
workshop agreements that she has, like when she leads her workshops and, um, and teacher trainings. And it's really like, it kind of became the mantra for our 200 hour, like that Mm. I led, um, last year, but it's, I think so eloquently sums up this idea of non-attachment and of how life actually is. Right. Because I think there's this tendency in like our society that, you know, everything is simple right? Like, um, that everything, uh, that you should be expecting to have closure with every situation and relationship and that A plus B equals C and it's always that way. And actually there's like nothing to do with how the human experience is. Yeah. Right. Like being in COVID times right now, like shoves in our faces that life is uncertain Yeah, and nothing is guaranteed to us. And so like, if we can like, stop struggling against what reality actually is, mm-hmm. whether or not we think it should be that way, mm-hmm. right? Like we can have feelings about that for sure. But like, are we causing ourselves suffering by staying there? So I'll just give an example of myself. When the pandemic first started to happen and I had to cancel like everything that I had planned in 2020. Which was retreats. Which was a ton. Yeah. Retreats, teacher trainings. Like last year I traveled for four months for like of the year total mm-hmm. um, for, for teaching out of town. So I travel a lot. I teach a lot. I canceled a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I was really suffering for like several weeks, maybe like six weeks I stayed there, right? Like I don't want to do online work. I don't want to be on the computer all the time. Mm-hmm. This isn't the work I want to do in the world. Like I need to be out there. I wish it wasn't this way. Like that whole struggle bus. Yeah. And so I was like causing myself suffering where eventually like by working with my thoughts, I got to the point of like, this is the work now and this is meaningful. And there are lots of perks to this work. Like it is way more accessible. I'm able to reach more people like this. Yeah. There were lots of really good reasons why this was fine. Right. And also this was reality and I don't know when I'm going to be able to teach in person again. So like I can either choose to continue suffering by resisting against the idea of like what's actually happening or I can say like this is a circumstance, a pandemic Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. I cannot Mm -hmm. control. Yeah. 100% that's a verifiable fact. (laughs) So (laughs) so I can either decide to like change my the way that I'm thinking about this and really practice these intentional thoughts that keep me connected to the work that keep me purposeful and vital even though the circumstances aren't what I would pick or I can stay in the suffering place and so I don't do it perfect all the time for sure Mm -hmm. but this is something that's been really meaningful to me in a part of my yoga practice that I think has has changed everything so thanks for letting me geek out about thank you for sharing that I that's super relatable for everyone especially now um when you brought up your teacher training and your retreats, it reminded me that um, something we talked about earlier was that you have been teaching about consent mm-hmm. in those spaces. So tell us a little bit about your work there and what that means. Yeah, um, I try to talk about consent at every single teacher training that I do, um, even if I'm only going to do like a two hour workshop or something like that. I think it's something that Um, is really important, especially if you're going to offer physical touch in your classes, which I know is kind of like on hold maybe (laughs) because of COVID, but it's not just having to do with that. Um, So I maybe I'll just talk about like a model of consent that I think works really well and then and then like a why maybe. So um, I think there are three components to consent that are really important. Um, And this isn't something I invented. Like we can look to places like uh, queer community or like sex positive community where this is like really a norm of the Mm -hmm. way people interact with one another, where consent has to be really clear, especially around physical touch and like boundaries. So there's three components to consent. Um, It should be enthusiastic. So like an absence of no is not the same as yes. Yeah. Right. Like we've all sort of been like pressured into something or we felt like we had to say yes or we maybe just like shrug our shoulder. Like none of those is a yes. Like it's a clear and affirmative yes. It's a heck yes. Yeah. It's that enthusiastic consent of like the eye contact, the little head not like, you know, when you're getting a yes versus like body language that's like "Mm, tentative, right? So knowing that you're getting that yes. Um, Ongoing. So it should have an ongoing way to check in with people about, and I'm speaking like mainly about physical touch, but like we'll talk about some other things too. Yeah. Um. So for instance, um, with hands-on assists in a class, right? Like asking, you know, 
who wants, you know, hands-on assists and letting people raise their hands at the beginning. I think that's one way to like to get towards it. But then what if during the class, like I start to be in pain or for whatever reason, I'm not comfortable being touched later. Mm -hmm. Like you really want a way to always know. Do you have that enthusiastic? Yes. Yeah. So an ongoing way of checking in and like we can talk about practical ways to do that. But one example is like consent cards. Like everyone has this little, I don't know, coaster looking thing that says yes on one side, no on the other side. You explain how to use it. Everybody gets one. It goes on their mat. Then they get to write that permission slip or take it away at any time. Um, And the third component is um, that it has to be informed consent. So people have to actually know what they're saying yes to. Yeah. And I think in the case of adjustments or hands-on assists, like asking a question like, is it okay if I give you an adjustment or is it okay if I give you an assist? If that person may or may not know that that means you're going to put their, your hands on them. Or where, where is the hand going to go? Or how, or right. The quality of the touch you're going to offer. And so I think that um, really being precise with our language um, so that we can get that true and affirmative yes, that people are really game for whatever the thing is, mm-hmm. right? Whether that's a hands-on assist in a yoga posture or whether that's like, you know, participating in sharing in a sharing circle or whatever it is, right? This protects the student and the teacher. And so we really want to, because as a teacher, we don't want to touch someone that doesn't want us to touch them. We would never want to violate someone unintentionally or cause them pain, right? There's a lot of reasons why someone might not want to be touched. Like maybe you're just having a bad day. And if one more person comes near you, it's over. (laughs) Or maybe you have chronic pain and that's going to cause you to flare up. And that's going to, you know, take away possibilities for you later in the week, right? Like there's lots of good reasons. And so I think like for us as teachers, you know, it's really important that we that we make sure that our students are in charge of what they do with their bodies. Yeah. Um, And not only because like it's a liability and you could get in trouble, but also because as teachers who want to share the yoga practice, we are there to really create a space where people feel safe enough in their bodies to actually do that Mm -hmm. and to actually practice yoga and not just yoga. Like we're stretching together for an hour and doing some breathing, but like, the whole capital Y yoga, like the system of yoga and that way of being in the world of, you know, that journey of turning inward and remembering the truth of who we are and showing up in the world in a way that honors our interconnectedness. And so this idea of consent and this goes back to that agency and that personal power that I was talking about, like if people and actually to the making welcome that we talked about at the beginning, Mm -hmm. right? Like when we create space for people to do this really intense like journey of growth and transformation and spiritual awakening and all the things that the yoga practice is about, we're asking a lot, first of all, (laughs) for people to really be game to participate in that with us. And I think also to to ask people to do that in a group, right? Because usually we practice yoga in a class together it's a social Mm -hmm. experience that we do but it is a really personal practice too right it's this personal journey that we do in a social way at least we have historically (laughs) for the past few years since I've been teaching um and so I think that if we're asking people to actually do those things like really pay attention to the sensations in your body which can feel scary and disorienting at first if you've been cut off from that, right? Like mm. think about like uh, what's required to like go on a diet and you have to like ignore your hunger signal. So like there's things in society, I think that divest us from that connection with our body and asking right. people to go back inside is scary at first. Like asking people to sit with their thoughts and meditation is, is like a place that not a lot of people find like pleasurable. It's a challenge. It is. So to ask them to do that challenging thing we really need to make sure that we set up the the most safety and the most like welcoming environment and set them up for success to do that work. And if you're worried about your appearance or if you're worried about nailing a pose, because that's what the teacher makes it about, like keeping up with the class. If you're worried that no one else in this class looks like you and what does that mean about this space and your access to it, right? Like all of those things come up, these barriers that are, invisible to us perhaps as teachers but that our students definitely have in our in their lived experience like 
I think that, you know, it might seem like a, a whole lot of additional work to like take all these things into consideration and really be conscientious of them. But if our goal as teachers is to be able to share these teachings and have people be able to really transform their lives and um, and realize the benefits of the practice, not just like I'm a little more flexible and it mm-hmm. reduces my stress, not those kind of like sort of temporary fixes, mm-hmm. but really a way of working with their lives and being able to be with reality in a way that's not attached and that creates resilience. Like we really have to create that ability for people to be safe in their bodies. And so to me, consent is like at the cornerstone of that because it's not only about getting that yes and you know protecting yourself as a teacher, but I, I've had many, many students who when I ask for consent before I put my hands on them for a physical assist or whatever, after class come up to me and like with tears in their eyes say like, literally no one has ever asked if they could touch me before they touch me. Like people are just like, I'm a hugger and they come in or yoga teachers just grab me during the practice. And like, I never actually thought about the fact that I could say no, that this is my boundary. You know, like I talk about like where my space ends and yours begins and like this is the boundaries of my body and myself. Like I'm getting goosebumps just talking about it because that like really opens up that possibility of, oh, I do have agency. I do have personal power. I am the expert of this body, not these other people. Like I've lived here for 38 years. I get, I'm in charge just like your mantra. And so I think that is so powerful to like give that gift to our students that we create this culture of permission and of agency and consent. Um, not because we're some great teacher who like can only create that for them, but that we set that up. We set the expectation up from the beginning and say like, actually this isn't a place where you're going to come in and try to like hurt yourself to prove that you can do a certain pose. This isn't a place of striving and competition. Like this is not what that class, this class is about. This class isn't even about doing yoga poses. (laughs) Like, Asana is great, but asana are tools to work with the mind, right? To do this journey of like turning inward and knowing ourselves so that we can like realize this interconnectedness in the world. And like asana is just the technology that yoga gives us to like work with the mind. And so I think like making that clear to our students that I'm not here as like a drill sergeant or a fitness instructor that's like guiding you through a bunch of poses I'm actually here to just like hold space for you to do your own practice. Right. Because no matter how much I want you to do your practice, I can't do it for you. And so I want to set up a space where you feel safe to start to do that practice because I know that we are interconnected and you doing your practice and me doing mine, like it's going to like inform our relationships in the way that everyone shows up in the wider world. So yeah, maybe that's where I'll leave it. We'll be right back with more from The Yoga Show. So sadly, retreats are not exactly going off like gangbusters right now. Right. (laughs) But I have high hopes that one day we will all be retreating together again. And on that day, tell us what one of your retreats looks like. So I do three or four retreats a year, but I'm going to tell you about my favorite one, (laughs) Body Positive Yoga Summer Camp, which is something I started doing in 2015. And it's actually like my favorite part of my job (laughs) is being in these kind of like retreat situations because I, one of like my favorite things to do is create a space that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Um, it's something that I've done since I was a kid, just like the way I build community is like, I never look, I create the space that I kind of want to be in. And so, um, I had never been on a retreat when I threw my first one. I've only like been on two ever in my life, but I've thrown many more than that. Um, but I really wanted to create a, a space where people felt free to be themselves in their bodies that they're in now. Yeah. Um, and And also the theme of my retreats is often around self-acceptance and especially body image work and learning to love the bodies that we're in or at least like accept them. If we don't get to love, that's Mm -hmm. okay. It's pretty tall order. Mm -hmm. So um, the, the thing that's really special about these retreats is like 
all these strangers show up to this party that I throw and we don't know each other, but we already do Mm. because we have so much shared lived experience around um, being in larger bodies. A lot of people that come to me as students or come to my retreats are women or people of all different genders in larger bodies. Um, And, you know, because like I'm the teacher for them because they see themselves reflected there or whatever. And so folks show up and we have a party for like five days together. So Body Positive Yoga Summer Camp is in like one of my favorite places in the world in Central Virginia. It's near a town called Lexington. And um, it's the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains. There's amazing swimming holes. It's just like such a cool place to be in nature. And um, I've gone camping there for like over a decade. So like I know the area super well. And I just like love the idea of like now I have – 20 new friends and we're going to like party together all week. So, uh, we, we spend time practicing yoga together. Um, the place that we retreat at is really special. It's like owned by this couple who are both artists. And so like the yoga is in this hundred year old dairy barn that's been renovated with this beautiful light. And there's like 360 degree views of the mountains. Like it's just a gorgeous place to be. But also we do really like intense work while we're there together. Like we talk about body image. We talk about shame. We talk about all those things that are really, I think, difficult for people. But when you're in community and you can like share with folks and kind of hear those things that always run through your mind, like other people say them like you really feel less alone. And so there's that piece of it, but also we go to the swimming hole at Goshen Pass and slide down the rocks and the waterfalls and jump off rocks in the river. And we're all there in our bathing suits together, mm-hmm. like in our big bodies, just existing in the world. And it's so much easier and feel so free to do that with other people that know what it's like to be in your head and be in a body like yours and have that lived experience of feeling like... um like whatever problems you have are only yours and it's hard for you, but not everyone else. And I think like that feeling of being less alone when you leave a retreat like that is one of the most powerful things that I've heard from people. And for me too, right? Because Mm -hmm. I get charged up too by being in that kind of community. And, um, and when we do things that society has maybe told us as people who identify as women who are raised and socialized as women or let's say like people in bigger bodies or whatever when we do things that are counter to what society says like we're supposed to do right uh I think that can open up a sense of possibility so you know fat people aren't supposed to be out here in bathing suits being all comfortable with themselves and jumping into rivers or whatever you're like supposed to cover that up right, right. like that's what dominant culture would say to yep. us but us being there in our bodies, like free and like totally accepting one another and knowing that like, if I feel acceptance toward you, like that means I can feel that acceptance toward myself, Mm -hmm. like that possibility and that freedom, I think is such a gift for people to fully step into. And, you know, when we We do other fun stuff like silent disco, which (laughs) I love to geek out about. Silent disco, if you don't know what it is, there's like these special headphones and you can like pick different channels of music that are predetermined. So maybe there's like three channels and then everyone can control their own experience of like, you know, when you've been to the club and it's like too loud. So like you can turn it down Mm -hmm. or if you want it to blast you, that's me. I like turn it up all the way. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, and everyone is like dancing together. It's really beautiful. And it's fun, too. It's like we pull up some benches. We maybe we're around a pool. So some people are seated and kind of into it, but don't have to dance all night. Right. So I think it's really accessible, too. And dancing, I think, in a group or in a social situation is something that a lot of us have a lot of anxiety about yeah and can really like police ourselves in this way of like okay I don't want to like take up too much space or I'm not good at dancing so I I don't have rhythm or my body jiggles when I dance and I don't like that feeling right like all those things that might come up if we say like went to a nightclub and tried to dance which is very much about like people are looking at you or there's this expectation around nightclubs that you're supposed to be like finding a relationship or a date or you're on display or I don't know all those things right 
Whereas to get like if you change the intention of we're actually here to learn to accept ourselves more fully, even the parts that are messy and bad at dancing and jiggle all over the place or whatever, right? Those thoughts we have. Um, And we can do this together in a way and with an intention that isn't about looking great or having dance moves that get you in a Lady Gaga video or like whatever, (laughs) but about like having fun and enjoying our bodies and learning to be with ourselves and in the way that we are now and reality that's happening right now. The whole system of yoga and like this idea of community, like through the lens of the yoga teachings where we are going to do that serious like self-study stuff and we do it in community but also we really tap into like those feelings of pleasure and joy that are available in our bodies regardless of like what our bodies look like yeah or whether we're actually happy with the appearance or the ability or the age of our bodies like it kind of makes it besides the point because when it's done in that community lens like it's so much easier to love and accept ourselves or at least come to a neutral place of like appreciation about ourselves if we can do that with other people that we have stuff in common with. Because like that lets us sense the possibility of like, oh, well, I'm seeing this other person in a body that's like mine or, you know, in a body that's not a dancer's body, quote Mm -hmm. unquote, like dancing and enjoying themselves. Like that does things to our our schema like that that helps us form those new neural pathways and like sense possibilities for ourselves that maybe we have shut down because of the expectation that society places on us or because of our conditioning yeah or because of internalized shame or like all the different reasons or because we've had to do it that way to be safe and survive right like um i think that is one of the powerful things about learning and community and doing well, this yoga practice that yoga doesn't always look like down dog, that yoga can look like dancing in a circle with people with the same lived experience and talking and sharing and learning new ways of thinking and relating to ourselves and one another. And I think it's really beautiful to like, to be able to bring that practice off the mat in a way that's super fun and pleasurable. Yeah. And there's something to be said at least for me, that's really changed the way I feel about myself, which is seeing the way that people who maybe you've just met or you're meeting see you, sort of seeing yourself reflected through someone new's eyes, because we get these ideas about ourselves that are conditioned that aren't true. And like, I don't know if I think many people might have had this experience where like you meet someone new and you think they're kind of cool and you want to be friends with them and then they like you too and they want to be your friend and then you're like, wait, you like me? Like, <laughs> I'm always like surprised. Oh, you want to hang out with me? And and but the more that I meet new people, you know, and mm-hmm. and realize, okay, most people do like me. Right. When they meet me, they're not like trying to get the hell away. <laughs> then you can start to feel a little different about yourself because you're like, okay, well you see yourself the little bit more the way other people see you. And I think that's something that I, I've only been on one retreat, but that was the the biggest takeaway. Like on the first day, it was Jen Pasteloff's retreat and she had us with our non-dominant hand draw a self-portrait and then write a statement that we wanted to believe about ourselves, but didn't. Mm. And on mine, I wrote, I am fallen lovable. Mm-hmm. And on the last day of the retreat, Jen was like, you're the most fallen lovable person. I don't know what, like, what the hell is wrong with you? But it was just like, okay, well, being here for a week made me start to feel that a little bit mm-hmm. because 20 women, you know, didn't think I was horrible, but, right. but that's not the place that I was in my life before I got there. Yeah. Yeah. And I think sometimes, I don't know, I really encourage people to, to say to one another, actually those things that they feel this Mm -hmm. is how we close out every retreat or like teacher training we sit in a circle there's this little game we play where you like you toss a a ball or stuffed animal or whatever to someone else and you have to tell them something you noticed about them something you appreciated Mm -hmm. a memory that you shared and everyone in the community gets to hear that yeah and we also get to practice hearing a, a, a compliment, yeah. a positive thing said about us in front of other people, which I think is a skill to build, yeah. right? That's yeah. difficult, right? To not only like hear and believe a compliment like that, but also to like have that happen in front of others. Like mm-hmm. there's this whole thing around it, right? And everyone's crying by the end. It's yep. fine. <laughs> That's like part of it too. But it's really, um, I think 
a vital part of being in community with one another and in relationship too is like saying those things out loud, like letting our, our friends, our family, our community, like know what they mean to us. Cause I think we just kind of like take for granted sometimes of like, Oh, well we're friends. So of course that's a given, you know, or well, of course course you have to, you know, your sister loves and accepts you or whatever, you know? So I think that piece of like saying it out loud too is, is just another way for us to start to reinforce that, um, that idea. Well, like you said, like that you could start to believe that you're fallen lovable. Your brain started to gather mm-hmm. some evidence about mm-hmm. that, right? Because you were in an environment where it was set up to, um, that people were going to like be able to reflect that back to you. Yeah. And yeah. So tell us, since we're not retreating, you do have a new initiative with Accessible Yoga. Yeah, I'm so excited about that. And um, that's starting this week? So it's it's been, uh, so it's the Accessible Yoga Training School. Um, and I'm, uh, I started that with Jeevana Heyman, who's also, uh, he's the founder of the Accessible Yoga Organization and, um, and the Accessible Yoga Training, which is a continuing education training for teachers who... Uh, want to learn to work with folks with disabilities or with mobility limitations and incorporate them into into group classes and really like learn that uh, skill of teaching students with differing abilities at the same time. So this training existed. Um, it's been around for several years. And um, a couple years ago, I started leading some of those trainings for Jeevana. So mm. there's a few of us that lead those trainings. When COVID happened, um, none of us were able to do that anymore. So we um, started the process of bringing the accessible yoga training online. And we led that for the first time in June of this year. Over 300 people signed up, which was amazing. It was really cool to like make it even more accessible than it usually is, right? Because like attending a training in person isn't possible for everyone for many different reasons. And so um, we decided to continue to try to, since we had already built this platform, we talked and we wanted to start this online academy for um, courses and education around issues of equity in yoga. Um, yoga and social justice are kind of the same thing to the two of us. Mm-hmm. And the way that we work is really similar. I'm like so grateful for Jeevana and all the ways that we've um, been able to like be colleagues and, <laughs> and do these trainings and things together. It's, it's really amazing to feel aligned in that way. Um, but this school definitely for us is about, um, platforming underrepresented and underestimated teachers as well. So like one of the direct goals with the school is to address issues of gatekeeping in the yoga industry, for Mm -hmm. lack of a better word, um, that if you really think about it, like, um, the same sort of like 10 people always get sort of picked to be the expert on the podcast or lead the teacher training or, are the guest, you know, keynote at whatever. And so, um, and we personally know through the accessible yoga community, which is like such a strong global community of practitioners and teachers that there are amazing teachers out there like doing really vital work in their communities, but they don't have a huge social media presence Mm -hmm. or maybe they're not sort of like aligned with the standards of beauty that allow teachers to become popular in yoga, or maybe they don't have the connections that, allow them to be seen and to, for their work to have a platform. And so it's really important for us to, I think, as a community, as a yoga community, as, you know, anyone who's probably listening to this practice is part of the yoga community. Yeah. Um, for us to look around and ask, like, who's here and who's missing? Yeah. Like, who's not in the room and right. why? And for me, a lot of times, um, gatekeeping is the answer to that question. Like, if you think about who gets to take teacher training in the first place, absolutely, right? Yeah. Uh, you have to like invest a significant amount of money. You have to have enough time away from work or family responsibilities to participate in an intensive self-study. Yep. You maybe have to travel and get childcare or pay for accommodation, right? Like there's a lot mm-hmm. of privilege that goes with attending a teacher training at all. Right. And, and then also, getting a teaching job afterwards. Yeah. I mean, before COVID at least, like mm-hmm. who's getting hired and, and, 
you're not exactly getting a full-time schedule with benefits and great pay. So you have to be come from a certain line of privilege to even take the job if you even get offered it. Exactly. And so like we we want to notice like when that's happening because and and also goes to like who runs teacher trainings, right? Yep. So like if everyone who runs teacher training is, you know, a, a young, thin, hyper flexible white person with money, mm-hmm. then that's going to inform also who comes because yeah. people want to see themselves reflected in their teacher. And so like if we're only making teachers who can teach like sweaty vinyasa classes to 20 year olds that are very fit, mm-hmm. then who, you know, then that mm-hmm. informs like that the culture right. of, of yoga and so I think like when we can start to notice like where gatekeeping happens, that means we can start to pull it apart and we can start to actually equitably distribute resources, which are not just money, but also teaching gigs, also platforms, also like whose work gets reshared on popular social media mm-hmm. accounts, even if those are like yoga and social justice organizations. Right. Do you know what I mean? And so I'm very excited about that part of it. Um, our first course that's um, after the accessible yoga training, which we'll run that a few times a year online, the same training. Yeah. Um, but we're also going to release short courses and continuing education with um, with teachers that are really committed to the heart of the yoga teachings and these values of in- interconnectedness and justice that I feel are really part of yoga philosophy and and truly like the way that we can use this practice to to really like live it you know what I mean yeah and so Kelly Palmer um who is a good friend of mine she's my work wife hey Kelly I know you'll listen to this (laughs) (laughs) um we uh we had Kelly Palmer um who's a teacher out of Charlotte North Carolina um teach our first course Uh, it's a course about race equity in yoga and Kelly is a black woman and um really started her teaching practice because uh, people like her mother who were, you know, black women in their 60s who maybe were like grew up in evangelical churches, like Mm -hmm. really not who the yoga industry is like catering to at all and who didn't feel um, safe or welcome in yoga studios, but really connected to the practice. Like Kelly started teaching to create space for people like that, who were not being served. And she also has an amazing nonprofit that's, you know, really stepped up during COVID to get money directly in the hands of um, black teachers and healers in their local community. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of gatekeeping and red tape in who gets grants and how much you have to prove the need that you have and all that kind of stuff. So we really wanted, I mean, Kelly is an example of a really amazing teacher who I think is, you know, underestimated and underrepresented in the practice. We're so proud to like have her first course. Over 200 people signed up and there mm-hmm. that is going on live right now as we're recording. Actually, probably right now. I think one of the classes is today. Awesome. And it's just amazing to really see so many people being game to like to do that work. The um the course is really about um inquiring like how each of us is um uh, sort of part of this system of oppression of white supremacy and how those things show up in our yoga practice, in our lives, in our teaching, all of that, Mm -hmm. and how we can start to pull that apart and ask, like, what is my individual responsibility when it comes to social justice, when it comes to race equity in my classes or my studio or however you relate to the practice and so we're so excited to bring uh, to bring that work like to a bigger audience and also uh, we've got some really exciting other courses in the works um, about different topics in social justice, like agency and consent and empowerment, yeah. like um, body image, like uh, issues around ability and disability, um, lots of different things like that. So awesome. we're very excited to sort of have this new um, platform and new channel and new way of addressing some of these issues of gatekeeping and really platforming and celebrating like teachers who maybe traditionally don't have that access, like sharing that access feels awesome. So yeah, I'm excited about it. That's really exciting. And where can people find out more about it? AccessibleYogaTraining.com. You'll find everything there, including uh, our next uh, accessible yoga training course, which you can always sign up for the waitlist if enrollment isn't open. Not sure when this will air, mm. um, but we run that a couple of times a year and we'd love to see you in one of the other courses that's being offered as well. 
Perfect. And where can people find more from you? Yeah, so you can search me online, Amber Carnes, K-A-R-N-E-S, or bodypositiveyoga.com has all the links to my social media and all the programs and whatever I'm up to. (laughs) Perfect. Well, Amber, thank you so much for talking with us today and being part of our issue. It's been so great. Thank you. I'm really excited that we get to do it. Yay. Thanks for listening. And thanks again to Amber for joining us on the podcast. Pick up a copy of the celebration issue on newsstands now, featuring Amber on the cover. You can also find her on Instagram at Amber Carnes Official. And tune in two weeks from now for another episode of The Yoga Show. In the meantime, you can follow me at lens.tucker on Instagram for more from Yoga Journal and beyond. The Yoga Show is produced by me and Aviv Rubenstein. Follow him on social media at Rambo Calrissian. Theme music by Katie Canvan. More from her at Accordion to Katie on Instagram. Until next time, for The Yoga Show, I'm Lindsay Tucker. We'll see you on the mat. For accessible 5-30 to minute meditation, pranayama, yoga nidra, and mantra practices from some of the world's leading teachers, tune into Yoga Journal's The Practice at yogajournal.com slash podcast. If you're looking for ways to decompress while discovering fresh perspectives on yoga and wellness, tune into our sister podcast, Why Now? Hosts Monica and Cameron talk to yogis from around the country on the intersections of self-care, social justice, relationships, and more. Find it at yogajournal.com slash podcasts.